We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie and all our bumpies listening. How are you this week? I'm not sure. I've been a bit up and down this week. I have I'm had... I'm not laughing at you. No, I know. I've had some really great moments and then some not so great moments this week. There's been a bit on... Basically, last week after we finished recording our intro, which was on Monday, because we like to record them the day before the episode goes live to keep things fresh, I got on a plane to Melbourne because I had a really exciting job on Tuesday that I'd been looking forward to for so long, a brand I loved, really, really cool concept. Nick and I were doing the job together. We flew down to Melbourne with Pearl. Just high vibes, good times. Anyway, (laughs) overnight on Monday night, I came down with an atrocious bout of gastro and I was so unwell all night. I actually thought at the start that I had vertigo and that was causing me to vomit because I got up to feed Pearl at one point and thank goodness nothing bad happened. But as I staggered to sit down, the room was literally spinning around me and I couldn't I, the floor didn't feel level and I like staggered to the side of the bed to sit down to give her a feed and I was like, oh, my God, do I have vertigo? Put her back down, went to bed, kind of closed my eyes and the room was spinning, room was spinning and I ended up getting up and vomiting and I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got vertigo. I've never had vertigo before in my life. This is awful. And anyway, then and were we, you thinking that because you were on the boat? Well, we'd been on the boat not long before. I was like, is this some kind of delayed, like my equilibrium yeah. is off situation? This is really, but it wasn't rocking like seasickness. It was much more spinning. Anyway, then the other end started to know it was definitely gastro <laughs> because I don't think I don't think vertigo gives you the runs. But that was me all night. And the next morning I woke up, I had my alarm set for six to go. I was getting my makeup done at seven and I was just like, okay, no, you can do it. And I got up and I had a shower and then it just continued. And I ended up having to pull out of the job and luckily Nick could go and still do it. He just kind of did both of our parts. And then that evening, once I was feeling better, we flew home. So basically I flew to Melbourne to have gastro and then flew home again. (gasps) The only positive was that the evening that we flew home was Halloween. So I got out of trick-or-treating with the kids because my brother and his partner were with the kids. So that was the only positive of the whole thing. And the fact that I only had one child with me rather than three. And anyway, like any adult knows 
like kids somehow get gastro and it's atrocious while they're in it. But then it's like as soon as it's gone, they're better. But I feel like as an adult, you're this crumbly, empty vessel and it took me days to get over it. And I had, um, I feel like because I was so depleted and so dehydrated, I had really bad anxiety. Mm. And that anxiety still hasn't fully left me. But it could also be related to on Saturday night, I woke up in the morning and Pearl had randomly slept through the night. Now, this is a child who has never woken up less than two times overnight. Like two times we are winning. That's a great night. She's never only woken up once. And we woke up in the morning and I turned to Nick and I said, did you get up in the middle of the night and give her a bottle? And he's like, no, did you get up and feed her? And I was like, I don't think so but I can't remember but we're pretty sure she slept through the night and then that morning I went to the toilet and I had my period for the first time so my body has just it doesn't know what to feel it's had gastro it's slept through the night once it's got its period it has this low level hum of anxiety that I don't know if it's my period I think it's also correlated to just the state of the world right now and just, I guess, of course, the conversations that are happening, but there's also a lot of, I guess, division and anger and still obviously where we sit in the world is an immense level of privilege that we can even check in or out of the conversation. But, you know, it is just a lot to take on, I think, especially as a parent, because you think, fuck, we're so lucky to be born where we are so that our kids are, are safe and everything. I just think it's everything. And I'm feeling just this, these jitters and these kind of like, uh, my heart rate just feels like it's always racing a bit. And I don't know which aspect of life it's from or if it's from all of them. Well, I think also you never stop. Like you, I don't think ever stop. I stayed in bed when I had gastro. Yeah, that's it. And then after that, you're like, <laughs> you know, I got told by my doctor the other day, he is a classic guy and I don't, I'm going to try my best Scottish accent. And this is what he said to me. He's like, oh, Jade, it's like you're, you're riding a bike and you're just riding along and you're doing really, really well. And then all of a sudden you take your hands off the handlebars and you're like, wee! And I was like, I have never felt more seen in my life. Wait, but that kind of sounds fun. Is it not fun? Is that meant to be a bad thing? <laughs> yeah, apparently the wee! isn't so fun because you have to end up coming down off your bike yeah but I just feel like in these times because there is so much going on I rested a lot over the weekend and it blows my mind when you sit still for a second you actually realize how much is happening in your life and I mean Mm. everybody especially mothers if you sit for a moment, like a fair few hours, and you just watch the chaos around <laughs> you and you think of how many questions come in and you think yeah. of how many people rely on you and how many jobs you have, the overwhelm on a normal day is a lot. And we carry this every single day mm-hmm. and it's usually fine. But it does get to a point, especially if you're going to, you know, you're going to have gastro or you need to fly or you've still got a, a baby It's like, and then you get mm. your period. It's like it's 
something, it's going to be exhausted and you Mm. deserve every right to feel anxious because you've got mental, physical, like there is everything happening for you at the moment. So I feel like you have every right to feel all those (laughs) feelings. I mean, everyone has a right to feel all those feelings, but brutal, fabulous guys. Sophie and I are in sync with our periods. Is this a good thing or is this a catastrophe? We will find out. I think once a month it's going to be a fucking <laughs> catastrophe, but it could mean some great content. So. Yeah, and that's the perk out of it. So that's the fabulous side. You know, sometimes like that fifth, sixth or seventh day of your period where you just wake up and you decide that you're not going to have your period anymore. Your body is still having its period, but you decide you're just sick of dealing with it and you go you know what I'm not I'm not putting in place any kind of safety measures here I've just decided it's not happening that's kind of how I felt from the second it arrived I was just like no 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 we're not here I mean it's been it's been nine and a half months without (laughs) it's been nine and a half months without it so I should be happy but I just thought no no, no, I'm not, I'm not back, ready baby. for you. I'm not. I, I, I'm not ready for you. I, I don't want you here. I don't want to have to deal with you. And actually, one other very interesting thing from this week, and I'm not sure if anyone else relates to it, and I think it's also added to the way I've just felt felt a bit unsettled. Is, is it the moon? The, oh, sure, we'll blame the moon. But it was yeah. the when I had gastro the feelings of what it felt like to be pregnant came flooding back. And it was like my body was like, I am not ready to feel nausea again. It was so interesting. I felt this sense of, of course, whenever you have gastro, you feel crap. But it was like on top of it, this sense of panic of, no, 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 in the past year, Mm. I've felt like this enough. (laughs) And I've been open about, you know, when I had hyperemesis, I would vomit and I would, piss myself and I did that again this time and you know I was like about thinking about laying down the towel or whether I sit on the toilet or and vomit into the bin or vice and it was just for you it's almost PTSD yeah and I don't like to throw that term around but it was that feeling of oh my god no I'm not ready to have this sensation again which was really interesting and I actually had someone message me who said oh do you find this triggering after having gone through hyperemesis and I was like yeah I think that was another layer on top Mm -hmm. of it but anyway that is enough about me how are you and how was your week (laughs) I'm I'm good I um I've rested for most of the weekend and I am faking it till I make it so that's no news is good news. No news is good news. Yeah, let's just leave it at that. So, I mean, we do have some exciting things coming we up this do. week, don't we? Yeah, so this episode is going to come out on Tuesday and on Tuesday we are going to be flying to Sydney because on Wednesday morning we are going to be on TV. We are going to be on the Today Show Extra. So it's not the Today Show, it's extra. That's how (laughs) extra we are. So if you guys are at home and you are just doing nothing at all. If you know how to access free to air TV. We're going to be there. It's going to be live. It's going to be fucking live. And I need to think before I speak, which probably won't happen. Sophie's nervous for me. It's going to be great. Or it won't be, but either way, it'll have happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be good. Now, 
shall we talk about this week's episode? I feel like I'm going to start the conversation because I found this episode really interesting because I wasn't as aware of it like a lot of other people may be. And it was a real eye opener for me. The discussions around our generation, what we're doing, our past generations about eating and teaching our kids and how we speak about food. It was just really mind blowing how much it can impact a child, let alone an adult. Yeah, I loved this chat and it's actually been one I've wanted to do for a long Mm. time just because it's an area of my life that I've made a real, I guess, decision that I am going to change the way that I speak to my kids about food and weight and all of that kind of thing. So we spoke to Lindy Cohen. She is a nutritionist and a dietitian and it was all about how we can approach food in terms of feeding them, but also more the language around it Mm. and our response to it, I guess, and more so how we can in some ways undo what we have been taught or was drilled into us, you know, growing up in the 90s, early noughties. Yeah. And I just, I really loved this chat and I just think it's an area that we can probably all do better without Mm. putting pressure on us. But it's just, I do really think it's important. So I hope that you enjoy it and you get something out of this and you agree that it is an important conversation to be having. I will say trigger warning, we do touch on disordered eating and eating disorders in this episode. So if that's something that you don't feel like you can listen to right now, maybe you want to skip this episode, feel free to stop it at any point. We hope you enjoy. Hello, Lindy. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Bump today. I am super excited for this chat. But before we get started, can you just give us a little bit of rundown on who you are, what you do and what we're going to be chatting about? Oh, hey, and it's so good to be on the show. I'm Lindy. I'm a dietitian and a nutritionist and a mom of two. I woke up about 10 times last night. So listen, if my brain is foggy, I do apologize. But what I do is I help people feel relaxed and calm and normal around food, something I was not taught growing up. In fact, I was given my first diet at the age of 11. Pinky promised that it was not a diet. They told me it was a healthy eating plan, but it was absolutely a diet because I was told to weigh out my food. At 11. At 11, at 11. And you know what? Back then, back in, what was this? Back in the early 2000s, this was not abnormal. So I have so many friends who are also getting sent to nutritionist offices at that age who are going to Weight Watchers appointments with their parents. And that is why I'm very excited to talk about this topic because I was not given the framework to help me become a natural, intuitive eater, someone who doesn't really think about food. In fact, I was kind of given the opposite blueprint where food controlled my thoughts. So by the time I was 16, 17, I had a raging eating disorder that was totally undiagnosed because I didn't look like I had an eating disorder. All my friends around me had disordered eating. So on varying degrees of this, in fact, research shows that 80% of women have disordered eating. And so if you are someone who has a normal trusting relationship with food, I, I think you're a unicorn. How? How? Tell me. How did you know? How did you live you... through the 90s and not just get royally messed up when it comes to food? I reckon, I mean, obviously we'll go through this, but if we're going to talk about personal relationships with food, my story, my mum and dad were, they never mentioned 
food. They never really was like, oh, you should not have junk food and you should have this. It was a very comfortable way for eating. It never really, I don't know, it just never really. I feel like you're the exception then. (laughs) I'm the unicorn. I'm the unicorn. I have a really good relationship with food. And do you know what spurred me on even more to you know, being like, we need to have this chat is I went and saw the, we don't have time for this live show, which is another podcast. If you don't listen to it, I'd recommend going listening to it. You're getting an affiliate code saying that all the time. I am, but but one of the videos in it was all about body image. And when it first kind of started, I was like, oh yeah, we've all seen the body image video. Like what new can this bring to the table? And the video is on Instagram now. And I actually recommend everyone to watch it because it was so incredibly dumb. But the thing that sat with me was that I looked around and there was 600 or so women in the theatre that, you know, different life stories, different sizes, different shapes, different ages. And every, I have goosebumps right now thinking about it because every single person was crying. Mm. And afterwards I was chatting to some other mums and one of the mums turned to me and she said, that is a crisis that you can get 600 people in a room show one video and it moves every single person Mm. like that. And actually I showed my husband afterwards once they posted on Instagram and I said, you know, you're raising three girls. This is really important for you to watch because we have to do better. And he burst into tears and my husband's not that much of a crier. Like he's very in touch with his emotions, but I've only seen him cry a handful of times. And he burst into tears because he related to the messaging so much. And I thought, wow, it's not just our daughters we have to do better by, it's our sons as well. And we must do better. And I think sometimes you can think in today's day and age, we're very conscious about the way we parent and what we say and don't say. And sometimes you just think, oh, it's too freaking hard. We can't say anything. But after watching that, I was like, no, no, no. This is an area that we must do better. I'm 33 now and my weight is something that comes into my brain, into my headspace every single day. Nowadays, it's completely different to what it used to be. But so many people, if you're listening to this right now and you dieted growing up, if you've ever felt like your weight is a problem, then thinking about your weight takes up a huge amount of headspace. In fact, you probably go to bed most nights and think, oh, how did I eat today? What do I need to do differently tomorrow? you know, you feel like you can get on top of absolutely everything in your life. You're talented, you're smart, you're, you can do pretty much anything you set your mind to, except your weight. It can often feel like this one thing that's a constant issue. You go away on holiday and instead of being able to fully relax and have the best time, you're thinking, shit, how am I going to fix my body when I get back from this holiday? And we're having these inner dialogues of going, okay, I just need to like, you know, what, what, what swimsuit am I going to wear? Or, or going, oh, I feel really fat today. How am I going to, you know, how am I going to fix this quickly? And it's this real internal struggle that so many of us have. And the issue is that, yes, little nuances in the way that we talk about food are going to get heard by our, our children. And I think it's, we know that they're going to get exposed to uh, so much crap around how, you know, how they should look and what an okay size is. And, and typically we've associated, you know, health with being underweight we've kind of thought that we've looked at like you know women on like the front cover of a health magazine who've had to like really restrict and diet themselves and in many cases they go through like a water fasting kind of period where they dehydrate themselves to look that Mm. way on the front cover then we go okay well that's what 
a healthy person looks yeah. like. And that was, you know, that's when we were growing up. And nowadays we have social media thing where people might take 500 photos and only post the most flattering of one of the images. It's really creates this idea, this real delusion around how bodies are meant to look and what they're meant to look. I want to fix this because I think we've been passing down disordered eating from generation to generation like a shitty tea set that no one actually wants, right? So we're done with this crappy heirloom passing down and I want us to be the last generation that got handed down this thing because I know the blueprint my mum gave me was one that she got from her mum, that she got from her mum. And so, you know, my mum would say things to me like, do you really need to be eating that? or pull in your stomach, or I can't believe you're still hungry, or that's way too fattening, you can't eat that, or something like, you know, you should be feeling hungry. If you're feeling hungry, it's a sign that you're losing weight. Uh, oh, wow. If you're feeling hungry, just drink some water. Do you remember constantly being told that? Like, not necessarily from my mum, but I remember being like, 70% of hunger is just thirst. I'm like, nah, I'm just hungry. <laughs> Genuinely hungry. That's okay. Yeah. Exactly. Or brush your teeth or whatever. So much of um, health advice is actually, I think, eating disorder advice in disguise. And it's very yeah. hard to pull apart what is health advice and what is disordered eating. And I find that, I mean, that's everything that I do. It's what I help people with. I mostly help mothers, women and people kind of untether themselves from diet culture in the first place to start is to create a healthier relationship with food for yourself Mm. and that way it's going to be a such a natural flow on effect and you don't have to overthink what do I say to my kids what do I not say to my kids because you're doing that internal work they're also Mm. going to look at you and go mum likes herself and I tell you what I did not grow up having that many women in my life who I saw who genuinely liked themselves who felt truly comfortable in their body who were trying to constantly fix themselves and so Mm. I would like the next generation to see more role models of that but basically if you were listening you probably also got told these little things because I hear it from people all the time who say this was my experience too I don't think my experience growing up and being told to pull in my stomach or to not eat too much was a strange phenomenon in fact there are people who are still adults whose parents they'll go to like have lunch with your parents your parents will say oh my goodness do you really need to be eating that cake this is common this is normal and it's not okay this makes me so sad because I can genuinely say that I have not been around this type of chat. It just hasn't been in my family. And I have definitely seen friends that have been through this and I have tried to understand, you know, why and how, and I've just never really, I guess I've never really sat and realized how detrimental or how crazy this whole situation about eating is. Yeah. But I've just never really sat and thought about it like this. Yeah. And I also saw this thing on Instagram the other day that really resonated with me again. And it was your children are going to be told over and over how much they look like you. Make sure they hear you saying good things about yourself. And I don't feel like my mum was over the top about this, but I feel like she was in some ways a product of her generation and I look so much like her. And that gave me goosebumps because in my eyes, she is so beautiful, but I never really heard her saying nice things about herself, yet I was told constantly, oh, 
you're her twin. And she would always say lovely things about me. It's not that she was trying to be harsh. And so that's really something I've taken on board, even though I joke about the fact that none of my children look like me. I'm like, I'm going to make sure that because similarities are going to be drawn, that they are hearing me, you know, say that I love myself and that I find myself beautiful. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing to to aim for. I really think that the way that we talk to our kids and talk about ourselves becomes our kids' future self-talk and the way that they talk about themselves. So it's like how, what are the words that we're using? And, you know, even if you're not talking about you know, them, your kids and going, oh, you shouldn't really be eating that. Amen. If you are talking about yourself in a way that isn't super supportive or shows your insecurities, I think they're going to, they pick up on that and they're very aware of it. Growing up, I also had this thing where other people's bodies were not immune to these comments. So let's say, you know, we caught up with, you know, a certain family, it might be like, oh, you know, so-and-so has gained weight or watching the person on the TV going, oh my God, is that news anchor? She's got way too much makeup or I don't like how her head is Yeah. Dark looks like she's gained weight. All these comments that they're hearing of us making about other people and appearances, not only does it give the the sense of, uh, you know, we need to change how we look and how we look is really important. It also makes them feel like oh, nothing is ever good enough. If, if we're finding fault in all these little things that don't need to find fault, they're kind of going, oh, well, if I did my hair well, if I dressed a certain way, then I could kind of be immune to these comments. It makes them think that the world is a lot more of a judgmental place than it is, or maybe, I mean, the world is a judgmental place, but (laughs) yes, it is. (laughs) It doesn't need to be that clear to them so early on. So are there things that we should do from the very start, for example, starting solids, or is it more so when they are conversing and comprehending food? I think there are so many things that we can be doing. I'm going to, I'm going to go through a whole bunch of stuff that we can be doing and a whole, some of them are a lot harder and a lot bigger and juicier than others. So even from starting solids, so I've got a seven month old baby right now who we're starting solids with. I'm definitely raising her to have a varied palate. So I'm giving her lots of options of trying things, but I'm also not doing that thing where we go, she's not allowed to have sugar until her first birthday. But some of the times what we do is we hold a certain food on a pedestal and we say, oh my, it's it's such a special food. We can only ever have it on our first birthday. And then I, you know, as a mom, I would turn it into a thing of a big celebration on her first birthday. She has her first piece of cake. And then, you know, it doesn't have to be such a big deal. It's just sugar. What we do in diet culture is we make foods into like really good or really bad or really celebrated or really like told not to have something. And I think that could be really detrimental as well. So that's one thing I would recommend us not doing is just don't make a big deal about it. Not that this is evidence for like, this is an anecdotal experience that I have, but like if my son these days goes to a party, he knows that he can have, you know, lollies or cake or chocolate, those things. But instead he'll kind of go to a party and he'll have some fruit and maybe he'll have a couple of bites of cake and this kid eats everything. But I do see other kids kind of going, all they want to eat is the cake and the chocolate and the cake and chocolate because they don't really get that much exposure to it. And I can't help but think it's on a pedestal. Sometimes I'll go to parties and I'll overhear parents saying something like, oh no, you can't have watermelon. Watermelon has too much sugar in it. And I think that's a very clear thing we can do. What we do at the moment is we we are demonizing perfectly healthy foods because of what diet culture has told us that we shouldn't be having them. So the idea that fruit has too much sugar in it is just not a message our kids need to have. Do we want our kids to eat fruit all day, every day? No, we don't. 
And so a really useful way, whether or not this is fruit or whether or not this is something like chocolate, if your kid's going, oh my goodness, can I have like more watermelon? And you're like, you've literally just eaten an entire watermelon. You are a watermelon at this point. It's 99% water anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of saying to them something like, no, watermelon is fat. No, watermelon has too much sugar. All you have to say is there's actually no more watermelon on the menu right now. And and they might be able to still see the watermelon. And if so, you could say, well, actually, we're sharing it with everyone. There has to be enough watermelon for everyone to go around. But we don't need to explain to them that this is bad for us and that's why we can't have any more. If you want, you could say something like, you've eaten your share of watermelon at the moment. And it's really good to eat a whole bunch of different foods. And rather than talking about why watermelon is not good, you're explaining why eating a variety of foods is mm. is a great thing to do. We're also not saying you've had enough, you can't have any more, you've been gluttonous, basically. We're just saying it's just not on the menu at the moment. So let's say your kid says, okay, well, I really want to have uh, another ice cream after dinner. Instead of going, well, you've had ice cream today, you know, we don't want to have any more. Uh, we can't, if we eat too much ice cream, it's it's really bad for us. You just say, there's no more ice cream on the menu today. I feel like this is like the TV thing when you're like, I'm not going to give them TV screen time and I'm not going to give them this. And I feel like if you just leave it on, usually like with my kids, everyone's different, but we leave our TV on. They don't really care about it because it's there and they know that they can have it. And our pantry is full of like, I'm not going to lie, It's not the healthiest pantry you've ever seen. But my older child craves health because we have such a variety in the house. She'll turn around and go, mom, can you go and buy an avocado? Or can you buy, like, she craves more of the healthy stuff because we have always a baseline of like crackers and, you know, things like that, that's always stuffed in the pantry. So I feel like she's the opposite in terms of like, hey, can you go to a food shop and go and get some healthy stuff because I'm sick of having this crap in the house. (laughs) It does go to this idea though, that like, we think if we control these foods and we keep them limited, that we're going to help our kid eat less of them, but the opposite ends up happening. We've all seen those kids who at the birthday parties just go nuts because they haven't been allowed any sugar and then they rampage. I was a binge eater for most of my teen years because of this exact problem. I was spent my my entire you know early years was saying you're not allowed to eat these foods. These foods are bad for you. It's too much sugar. It's too fattening. And as a result, when no one was looking, I would binge on all these foods in secret. So I would binge on healthy foods just as readily as I'd binge on unhealthy foods. So it could be peanut butter, spoonfuls of it into my mouth while I'm crouched in the pantry or could be bowls of cereal. Uh, I would binge on carrots and apples and, and yogurt. I would binge on chocolate, anything I could get access to because all food was kind of restricted to me, but especially those foods that were seen as bad or too sugary or, uh, you know, unhealthy. I hear this growing issue of parents talking about secret eating amongst kids, of their kids going into the pantry and they're finding empty wrappers and going, okay, I know my kid is hiding food for them. And I think the gut reaction is to go, oh, they're being really naughty and really bad. And what I need to do is I need to be more disciplined and more controlled with them and hide Mm. the food better. But I would say use this as a great opportunity to go, hey, if they're feeling like they have to hide foods from me, what I'm already creating is the sense that there are good foods and there are bad foods and they feel out of control around these foods. Binge eating, by the way, can start incredibly young from the ages of five and upwards, right? Can you just explain the term binge just so yep. yeah, people who don't know 
No. Good point. I mean, emotional eating and binge eating are different things. So I'll explain those. A binge is typically when you eat more food than you normally would. It's typically associated with like shame and guilt. Most often it happens in secret, but it doesn't have to. And we get diagnosed with something like binge eating disorder, which is the most prevalent eating disorder by a landslide and also the most undiagnosed eating disorder by a landslide. It was actually only recognized as an eating disorder very recently, less than 10 years ago. And so we're still kind of coming to terms with it. And that's when you're binging at least once a week for at least three months. So if you feel the sense of out of control around food, you feel like you you know what you should be eating, but you can't stop. You feel like once you start eating, it just snowballs. That's a binge. Emotional eating might be, I had a bad day. I really feel like eating some chocolate on the couch. And you go and you eat mm. the chocolate and afterwards you might go, hmm, okay, I'm done. I feel a bit better. And maybe you eat more than you would like, but it doesn't cascade into this like free for all of just eating and eating and eating. Sometimes my binges would only stop because someone came home or I ran out of food. And of course, there are varying degrees of what this binging looks like, but this is certainly a behavior we're seeing with kids and it's happening much earlier on. And I think very linked up with this restrictive mindset we have around food. I think it's problematic. And I think it also, as I said, it's an opportunity to go, all right, am I being too restrictive around the food? Am I, am I putting it on a pedestal? Am I saying we're only allowed to have it at this point? And I'm not saying we just give our kids free access to junk food all the time. I'm totally not saying that. But what I would say is it might be something like, okay, we're going to have chocolate now. And then once that chocolate is finished, mm, don't make a big deal out of it. Don't be like, oh my God, this chocolate's such a treat. You've been such a good boy or girl. Well mm. done. I'm going to reward you with this chocolate. I know that's the hardest thing to do is not to use food as leverage. And I got to tell you as a mom, it really works. It's really annoying how well it works. It's the easiest tactic ever. Yeah. It works as well. This gives me anxiety. What does? Like the thought of like the binge. I don't know. I just feel really sad that this is what society is like. This is what women have processed in their heads. Yeah. And I tell you about binge eating. It's incredibly common and it's incredibly normal. It's a very natural reaction to being told that food is limited. Remember back to COVID times when toilet paper was scarce? Oh yeah, that gave me anxiety too. We're running out of loo paper and people (laughs) went nutso because they feared there was not enough to go around. This is exactly what happens with food. When we feel like food is scarce, it's limited, it's finite, it triggers something primal in our brain, whether you're five years old or 50 years old, that goes, I need to try and get as much of this as I possibly can because my life depends on it. That's kind of how the the brain thinks. And so it does pretty much anything to get as much food as it possibly can. And it goes to the next degree. It's kind of going, well, I don't trust that I'm going to get a ready supply of food when I need it. Therefore, when mum and dad are not looking, I will eat as much as I possibly can right now because it might be my last supper, my last chance to have the foods that I actually want. And this is how we kind of get that binge behavior. And it is, as I said, actually a very protective behavior. So part of my work, I, I very much help women and people recover from binge eating disorder because it's incredibly common once you've been someone who's tried frequent, frequent diets, but it's also something we can prevent in kids from in the first place by not applying too strict rules around eating and not 
getting confused between what's healthy eating environments and what's just us giving them a whole bunch of diet rules. Yeah, because we try really hard to not put food on a pedestal in our house. Food is a massive part of our life. Like my husband's a cook. We love eating, love good food. And we've really tried to do that thing that, you know, when they sit down for dinner, there's a little bit of everything on their plate. Like we might have a bit of chocolate next to it, but I have found it hard when like the chocolate's eaten and then they're asking for more what to say next. So I really appreciate that tip of saying there's no more chocolate on the menu. That's great. But what, like there is a fact to it that eating some foods makes you feel good and eating some foods doesn't make you feel good. And and some foods do have more of a nutritional value than others. So how can we, because I, I do think it's important to be raised knowing about nutrition. So is it naive to put all food in the same category because it's it's really not? Ah, oh, it's not, is it? No, certainly some foods are healthier for us than others. That yeah. is an undeniable fact. And we wouldn't want our kids just having chocolate and chips and pizza all day. That's, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in that. And I think that's kind of the, the irony about this whole trying to make our kids healthier by applying these rules is actually what we see is they go crazy around these foods in much greater quantities than they ever would than if we simply said to them this, your body has an inbuilt mechanism for helping you be healthy. One, it's your appetite. Your appetite, the sole purpose of your appetite is to help you eat when your body needs more fuel. When you feel hungry, that's your body's way of saying, hey, I need a bit more energy. Do you mind giving us a bit more energy by eating? And so they have that innate system of going, okay, ideally what we do is we wait until we get hungry, we eat, and then we eat until fullness. If you've got a little kid, you're going to notice that they're actually pretty darn good at doing this already. Some days my toddler just eats and eats and eats. And other days I'm like, why is the lunchbox like totally full? And they are already very good at being those innate eaters. And I think what we often do is we train them out of that. We give them like you have to eat breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And just on that note, the research does show that kids should have something in the tank before going to school up to the age of 18. We do want them to have something. However, I just want to like challenge the notion of what breakfast looks like. Does breakfast have to be like a bowl of cereal or a piece of toast? What if it could just be a snack, you know, just something in the tank. And instead of having that like real full blown arguments in the like morning. That pressure on you that if you don't get this meal in, you're not going to succeed. Yeah. <laughs> like some people just aren't that hungry in the morning. And I think we need to allow them to, we need to respect that in them and teach them how to become really good at trusting their body's cues because they might find that they're ravenous at lunchtime. And that might be the conversation. Listen, if you have a little snack now, you might be fine that you're a little bit less ravenous by the time you get to morning tea. And that's the chat to have, but then also just kind of good, making sure that they do have those options with them during lunch. and and encouraging them to eat according to their hunger and not saying, listen, you have to finish everything on your plate because if you don't eat your dinner now, you're not going to get dessert. Do you know what that does? If you think about it, kids really good. Let's say they've got like 10 building blocks during the day and those 10 building blocks represent calories, right? If we say to them, uh, you have to finish this meal before you're allowed to have dessert, they might naturally override how much energy they 
have and end up eating more calories as a result of us telling them that they have to finish their main meal and then they get dessert. So we're teaching them how not to listen to their hunger. Yes, they might be eating more of the nutritious foods in their main meal, but the most important thing I think is that they're actually listening to their hunger. So what happens if that treat fit into those 10 building blocks as opposed to them then having 12 building blocks because we force them mm. to eat beyond their fullness. So in that ideal situation, we're kind of encouraging them to eat according to their fullness. Ideally, that dessert is coming at the same time as their main meal. I personally don't do that, although I think it's an ideal thing to do, but we're not saying you have to finish everything on your plate. So these are two ways that we're teaching kids how not to listen to their bodies. And what we need to do as parents, I think, is to encourage them to say, are you full? Are you hungry right now? Sometimes my son, you know how uh, toddlers can be like gremlins for snacks. Like, geez, you're a snack monster. Yeah, that was my next question. I'm like, they seem to say they're hungry all the time, except for when the meal is going down. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you teach them not to, well, to override that, but not the other one? <laughs> yeah, it's really tricky. Something I do for my son is I'll say, you want another snack? Cool. I've got an apple and I've got a carrot. And I don't think that's diet culture. I'm literally like, if you're hungry, you'll eat. I know if I'm hungry, I will eat an apple. And so if he eats, said apple and go cool you're still hungry he's still hungry afterwards he gets the carrot and then I'm going to go cool you can keep having snacks after this because you're clearly hungry for something and some days it goes like that if he goes no I want the chips I'm like oh buddy (laughs) mom wins this round Uh, (laughs) no we're going to wait until we we're going to wait until the next meal and I really am encouraging them to you know eat and I say to him if he's kind of not that hungry during a meal I said if you're not hungry that's totally okay just remember that it's going to be a bit of a long time until you get to eat again in your afternoon break and if he comes to me half an hour later and he's like, I'm hungry again, the apple and the carrot, you know, those kinds of things are there for him, but I'm not whipping out those super palatable yummy snacks and kind of going just here you go just because you're hungry. I am saying to him, it's okay for you to get a little bit hungry between your meals. And pretty much he will sit down for his meal times and eat them. And the snacks can totally cascade into sometimes he just has snacks and then he's not hungry for dinner. I think that's also just going to be par for the course. And sometimes that will happen. You don't have to be perfect in this pursuit. But ideally, what we're doing as parents is we're saying when we eat and what we're eating, and then they get to decide how much they're eating. Just Mm -hmm. repeat that. So you as a parent can choose when you're eating and what they're eating, but they decide how much they get to eat. Just coming back to this idea, because we asked, we're, we're just on the tangent before of we don't want our kids just to like eat junk food all the time, right? I have this kind of thing where we think we need to control what our kids eat, that we're going to help them eat healthier. But actually, they also have another inbuilt system for helping them ensure that they don't just eat chocolate all the time. Because if they just ate chocolate all the time, they'd feel pretty rubbish. And I think that is the thing we need to teach them how to tune into. So, you know, like when it's Easter or it's Christmas coming up, I don't think we need to kind of self-regulate them as much as we think we do. If my kid ate a whole bunch of Easter eggs, and he felt sick. I'm kind of going, you see how you feel in your tummy right now? That doesn't feel good. And if you eat a lot of chocolate, that's how it's going to feel. And what we do sometimes is we prevent our kids from ever having that experience where they go, yeah. oh, my body's giving me very clear cues. We, we come over the top of them and we say, I'm going to help you eat healthily, but I'm going to control you. You're not going to be around forever. So what we're doing is we're, we're, we're preventing them from ever building that inbuilt system that is going to help them make healthier choices. 
I actually wouldn't mind my kids eating to the point of being overfull, of getting ravenously hungry, of feeling like, oh, I ate way too much lollies. I feel ill because this is them training them to go, this is how I look after mm. my body. Mm. So you feel rubbish if you've been on holiday and all you ate is cheese and bickies for dinner every night and chocolate all the time. You come home from that holiday and you go, I actually really crave a home cooked meal. I want more vegetables. Mm. I want to mm. go to the toilet properly. You know, there are things we are craving. Holiday bow. It always goes one way or the other. <laughs> and so what we want to do then is we go, all right, okay, I want to eat healthily, more healthily again. We want that for our kids as well. But that's not going to happen if we're constantly yelling at them or trying to control them and applying even more food rules, making it harder them, for them to tune in. I've got a question. One, I'm absolutely starving by all this. Like my tummy's rumbling. I'm that hungry. But the question that I have goes back to the dinner table. And I find with my toddler, the other two, look, my older child will eat anything we put in front of her. Great. The second child is very particular, but she will eat it because that's dinner. The toddler, and I don't know if this is all toddlers, It does not matter what I put in front of her. At dinner time, she will just sit and look at it and won't touch it. And then afterwards, she'll go, I want dessert or I want this. I'm hungry. And I've done the thing where you go, I'm going to bring the bowl back and go, well, this is the dinner, babe. I can heat it up for you, but this is what you're going to have. And it doesn't matter what I do. She just doesn't eat it. Am I better off just getting things that she absolutely loves every night and make it different. So like tailored to her. So she actually eats something or am I better off sticking with what we're doing so she can open her palate and I guess learn to eat it. But it's like, I'm not forcing her to try it. I just say, can you please have a few bites so you could actually taste it? And I I don't know. It's just a, it's such a hard thing because apparently she eats at school fine, but when she comes home, are we not, And that exact question came in from so many of our listeners. So you're 100% not alone. It's just a really confusing, and I know like we do get past it when they get older, they, you know, understand they need to eat dinner because we're not going to give you anything else or something. But how do we, how do we deal with this situation? It's always dinner too. It's really tricky. And also remembering as well, they are just about to go to sleep. So uh, they need enough energy for them to have a restful sleep. But really, they're not like running around being frantic like that. And so of all the meals for it to be problemsome for, I think it's the best one. I know it's okay, true. I feel like we put so much pressure on dinner, but you're so right. They go to bed. Well, we hope they do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So feel good in that. I think what you're doing is the right thing to be doing. A few things to check out. When you're plating up her meal, can you plate up maybe a little bit less than you're currently doing? Typically what we do is once, especially if you've got older kids, you kind of go, well, that's what a kid's plate looks like. But if she's tiny and she's she's a toddler, she'll get a toddler serving size. So however much you think, half that. Because remember, if she goes, oh, I I ate all those beans. Here, well, there's more beans. I'll pop some more beans on. Uh, We have a habit, especially with little kids, of overwhelming them. In old age homes, what they do, let's say you have an old age home, who, um, an elderly person who doesn't have a huge appetite. If you go and place a huge meal in front of them, it's very off-putting. Imagine if you've ever had like, been like really sick and lost your appetite. You go, oh, it's way too much food. But if someone just gives you like a little plate with a few things on it, you might go, all right, that feels a little bit less intimidating. Okay. So fewer things on the plate. That's tip number one. Number two, what I want you to do is continuing with those exposures. I think the real risk, a huge risk with it, and this is going into fussy eating territory, 
is going, I am going to cook the things that you like because I know at least you're going to eat. And provided your child is growing, and this is very important that your, your pediatrician, your doctor has no concerns about their growth rate and all those things. Then at some point they're kind of going, if they go, I'm hungry, your kid is going to eat if they are hungry. That's typically what is going to happen. And so as long as they have those exposures, that really does count. We talk about this idea of having a familiar food and then you could add in a novel food. But I think your you know, it takes a kid 20 exposures before they might eat something or try it for the first time. I would encourage you to not ask her to have any bites, you know, and that used to be advice that you'd hear from nutrition saying, oh, I just encourage them to have one bite. And if they just try it, then, you know, they'll they'll know they'll like it if they just have one bite. But actually what we've found is that that applies an extra layer of pressure. Simply having the food in front of her, she knows what you want her to do with it. No, she's, she's played the game before. <laughs> so you just place the food in front of her, zero pressure for her to eat any of it. But there is clear that this is dinner time and we're going to eat dinner now. And if you're not hungry afterwards, that's fine. No problem. But if she gets hungry again and she asks for more food, you do, you re-give her that dinner and you say it's okay for you. And, you know, we are allowed to have food preferences. Like she's allowed to say, like, I literally just never like peas. I never like them. And she might be a, a, a 80 year old woman. He's like, I hate peas. <laughs> so they're allowed to have food preferences. But I think the, the biggest risk is when you start to pander to their likes, you end up with like three meals that they accept or sushi made by this, like, <laughs> it gets out of control and you can't, especially when you've got a big family, um, you're not cooking for it's like when I make toast, right? And I do this with all of them. They have specific likes of toast. One likes it more burnt and the other one likes it lighter and the other one doesn't like butter and the other one likes this. It's like, oh, my brain is about to explode because you're cutting a triangle and it's not oh, yeah, I was going to say, don't you dare cut it the wrong no, way. No, it's like, oh my gosh. But I feel like with this whole chat, what do you do with dessert? Say everyone eats their dinner and they all get dessert and then you're told he's like, oh, you beauty, I'm getting dessert now it's like well you haven't eaten your dinner so like what do we do there there's a few options here one of the she does get the dessert just letting you know (laughs) every time uh one option is kind of like if you think about there's like a bit of a um a dinner training camp where you're like at least for a week you kind of go listen we're all not gonna have dessert for a week yeah because i just want her to learn that there's actually just no dessert this is just like this is the food you're getting and that's not an option because for you to say you can't have dessert but everyone else can have dessert yeah I mean, you're the one dealing with that more than she oh, is. hundred percent. That's a meltdown we do not want at <laughs> yeah. six o'clock at night. <laughs> that becomes a you problem. So let's not try to do that. So that would be the best kind of thing. But also just remembering then, that, like, you know, if she's eating during the day and she's getting those boxes ticked, she's she's pretty good at listening to her hunger. Coming back to this idea, she has these building blocks. She's allowed to just have her ten building blocks. She may have already eaten nine. The dessert's going to be her tenth one. We don't need to say eat them all and then you know she ends up overloading for the whole day so do kind of play within that realm of you know there's no rules here but that's just generally it I personally would have a week of going let's not do dessert just see how she goes retrain her out of that habit but otherwise just I think what you're doing is pretty good Can I say a few things that have helped us because we had very adventurous eaters that then became beige toddlers and we were like, no, I thought. And then we implemented some things that have really helped. And of course, they would still like cheesy pasta every night of the week if they could have it. But some things that have helped is actually making dinner time earlier, which I know can be hard, but we just found that they were coming home from daycare 
absolutely ravenous. They would eat like so many snacks, so much fruit, and you could see they were so hungry. And then they're like screaming at you while you're trying to get dinner, but actually bringing dinner time mm. forward helped because they were so hungry that they would almost eat anything we put in front of them. Another thing is just putting the food in the middle of the table and them serving themselves mm. because they just feel like then they're in control and they just can grab, like rather than being put off by the things they don't want on their plate, they're just in control of what they get. And then also things like a learning tower and like kids' knives, if they've had anything to do with making dinner, even if it's literally like cutting one cucumber, they just seem like invested in it and more likely to eat and like they have more control over dinner. This doesn't work like all the time, but it's just been things that I'm like, I kind of get it if I never had any control over what I ate. I mean, look, my husband's the cook in the family, but if he never asked me, what do you feel like eating? You do, you feel a bit out of control and you're kind of like, this is just not what I wanted. And now it's in front of me and I'm expected to eat it. And so I do feel like sometimes giving them like a little bit of power back does help. I want to back up all those suggestions. Those are all top notch suggestions. And are you, do you agree with the familiar food? I know you touched on it briefly because sometimes, you know, sometimes we'll be having something and their familiar food is rice. If they are only going to have rice for dinner and they're asking for seconds, thirds rice, do you just keep giving them that rice until they decide they're full, even if they're eating nothing else? I would say there's no more rice on the menu. So there is a certain amount of rice that you have and there's no more rice on the menu. So you're allowed to eat. If you're still hungry, there's other food on your plate. There's other options, but there's no more rice right now. And that is just like a catch-all phrase. It's going to be a new buddy. And some parents wrote in saying, I get all of this, you let them eat to their full, but they were saying that their kids are just food obsessed and they worried if they let them keep going, they would just never stop. Is is that a thing? It is. My niece does it. She does not stop. My sister-in-law cannot fill that child up. She will happily eat anything and everything all day. Loves food. Is the pediatrician concerned? Well, I don't think she's taken her to a pediatrician. <laughs> she's just like, I'm stoked that you really love food. And she's she's not like, um, she's just a standard looking baby. <laughs> we have concerns about how much we think kids should be eating. And I know for myself, sometimes I've watched my son eat and he eats so much. I'm like, surely you're overeating. Surely this is too much. Surely I have to stop you or curb you. How can you literally eat this much? And that's us. That's our internal response to it. And that's something that we need to check with ourselves. If the pediatrician is not concerned, if they are growing well, do remember that there are days they will eat the house down and there are also days when they will not. So I actually think the hardest thing is to notice when you feel in your body that you think they're eating too much, check yourself and go, oh, this is a me thing. Mm. Sit with that discomfort and just let them continue to eat according to their appetite. Amazing. Well, that makes things a lot simpler when it's <laughs> when we don't have to do anything. So what wording do you use? If we shouldn't use words like good, bad, treat, junk food, sometimes food, do we just not call it anything? Uh, I mean, I, if, if you had to choose between all those words, I think sometimes an everyday food would be the better of the options. So sometimes we have cake, but we don't have it every day because it doesn't make us feel awesome. Every day we can eat apples and make us feel great, that kind of thing. But generally I feel like just I try not to apply any labels to it. And you know, funnily enough, it's very easy to do that. You just got to talk about food being food and not kind of going, applying any other 
judgments around it. See how you go in not using any words because it tends to work pretty well. Uh, do you want a chocolate? No, you don't want a chocolate. Okay, we're not going to have chocolate. That's kind of, it, it works. It works. Give it a go. This one I really like. Should kids have free access to the pantry and fridge? I think they can. Absolutely. It depends on their age as well. I think this is quite an age dependent mm. thing. You know, you're probably not going to have a three-year-old who's just going in and deciding yeah. what they want when they want it. I'm a bit of an advocate for kind of going, creating a healthy food environment for them, but at the same time, not meaning that those foods are just never available and not allowed. So it's, it's such a balancing act between keeping a healthy enough environment for them so that they can feel supported, but at the same time, not ensuring that you know they never have access to these things so it might be that they've got like you know some crackers and some chips but then a whole bunch of other snacks that are kind of a bit more of that you know you know muesli bars and dried fruit and and nuts and all those kinds of things I personally in in our pantry and this is for me and my husband as well as my kids is we have a snack draw so you know that feeling when you as an adult go I don't know what to eat for a snack and then you're rummaging around I have one drawer that's dedicated for this is where the snacks go so all you got to do is come over here and maybe one or two of those options are less healthy but the rest of them are generally healthy options in my fridge it's a very similar thing in fact probably most things in the fridge are going to be those healthy options for them that's not to say though that we don't have you know my son will make wants to make cookies all right let's make cookies but instead of baking the entire batch i freeze the rest of the 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 cookie dough so then it's in the freezer so if we ever go all right let's have a cookie it's not just sitting there in the pantry it requires a little bit of extra effort all right let's let's cut it up let's put it in the air fryer let's get excited for this cookie and then we eat it and we move on and i think there is this difference between sometimes humans are monkey see monkey do what we we eat what's in front of us so it's not just about putting all the unhealthy stuff in front of us in front of our face because i think we do end up eating it but at the same time a bit of a tightrope between you know allowing them to have those options as well air frying a cookie yeah, I'm even more hungry. How do we navigate these conversations around, you know, maybe our family members or friends in our lives that maybe don't realize the impact that comments on food and weight can have on our kids? How can we navigate that? This is huge. And I do talk about this a lot because I think this is, a, this is an entire podcast episode. In fact, yeah. I have a whole podcast episode on this. Um, I have a podcast called No Wellness Wankery. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I laugh every time I see that pop up because I'm like, it's just the most brilliant title. It's a fun one. And we have a whole episode about my mum won't stop commenting on my weight. What do I do? And similarly, my mum won't stop commenting on my child's weight or an auntie won't start saying, oh, your thighs are getting a bit big or, you know, got to be careful. You're going to get the, the bum like all the other women in the family. So we can have these people in our lives, in our families who think it's their responsibility to make comments to our kids about what they eat or how they look and giving our kids complex. Now, I think a really important thing that we can do here is we're, we're going to recruit them as allies into this arrangement. So we're going to have a conversation with those people and say, hey, listen, I'm trying this new thing. <laughs> you just got a phrase new like thing. that. I'm trying this new thing with our kids where we're not commenting on our bodies, anybody's bodies, and we're not commenting on food. I reckon it'd be really great because it'll make them feel good in their bodies. Do you mind helping me? I'd really love your help on it. Mm. That way we're not kind of going, hey, listen, you got to stop 
<laughs> smack talking in front of my kid, it's making me really <laughs> yeah. angry. You know, and so rather than going from the anger perspective, you're coming in and trying to get them to go, hey, we're on the same team. We're not against each other. That can be a very effective method. If it's your parent, you're saying, hey, listen, we're trying this new thing. Are you keen to be involved? This is what it entails. We don't comment on their body. We don't comment on anyone else's body. We don't comment on food. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to slip up. They're going to fall back into their old patterns mm. because, you know, your mom, if she's a grandma, she might be, have, have dieted for the last 40, 50 years. Remember the blueprint she got given by her mother. This is how she's been taught around food. So it's going to take a lot longer than just one conversation for you to change the way she relates to food. So then you can back and say, Hey, listen, I noticed you made this comment. You know, remember we made this chat about, we we're going to start thinking about food differently. Would you mind not making comments like that? It'd be really helpful. And just see if there's anything else. You sadly are going to have to offer those reminders. And this is us setting our boundaries and then ensuring our boundaries remain intact. And that was what that conversation is. Sadly, you might need to have that conversation countless times. Some people might not be able to help themselves and you just they're going to be quite persistent with it in fact those people are typically people who are not very good at respecting other people's boundaries in general so there's probably going to be a bit more of a theme and that that can be trickier like you've got a mother-in-law who's just not respecting what you're saying you might need to recruit your partner to go and have that conversation and once your kids get to a certain age you might even be able to have a conversation around you know, that person's relationship with food with your kid and saying, you know, explaining where they're coming from and, you know, they, they, they feel worried to eat certain foods, but it's not about you and it's not about what you're eating. So when you make, when you hear comments like that off the cuff, just please know that it's not about you. Yeah. My five and a half year old came out with a tricky one the other day. And actually she said it to my mom and my mom handled it really well. And I think she was really stoked because I think she felt pressure because she even said to me when she told me about the interaction, she said, oh, you know, I know this is a big thing for you guys. So I was really conscious that I said the right thing to her. And my five and a half year old said to her, I was eating with so-and-so the other day, who's a friend of hers, who's a similar age. And he said to me, whoa, Poppy, you eat so much. If you keep eating like that, you're going to get really fat. How would you respond to that type of thing? Because I feel like my mum handled it really well and I could tell she felt she was like, is that how you would have responded? And I was like, yeah, you did an awesome job. No, tell me, what did she say? I'm keen. She said, you don't need to worry about that. You eat however much you feel you need to eat. Everyone's bodies are different and it's not just food that leads to people's bodies being different. I think that's a pretty stellar response. Yeah. I was like, shimmy. Mm. Good job. She woke. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really awesome. And we just really bring you back to like, listen, you can trust your appetite. You don't need mm. to second guess your appetite. It's there to help you eat the right amount of energy for your body. I, I think I think that's important, but an important thing to say. Can I say what we do in our household? Because I haven't grown up with any of this and I... I don't know if it's the right way or the wrong way, but how we work is I have a bit of a tummy and we're very well aware of it and we can make fun with it. Like they'll put their fingers in it and roll it around and I will go, oh, you know, I don't even know how I'm trying to explain this. You're kind of allowing them to feel comfortable with your, what the world considers as an imperfection. You're yeah. going, you know what? I don't hate this part about me and you don't have to hate this part about me. And I think it is most excellent. Almost everyone who's given birth is going to have a stomach and going to have softness around that. And I think you're celebrating it. 
And also on the flip side of that, though, that's exactly, thank you for articulating that one for me. But I think the other thing is I also have days where I do say, oh gosh, I'd really like to get fit. Like I'd really like to work out, feel strong because I don't feel strong at the moment. So I think they see both sides. They see that I am comfortable within my body, but they also see that sometimes I do talk about wanting to be stronger and wanting to change things. And it's not because I want to get skinny. I don't think I'll ever be like ripped with a six pack, but it's the, how good I feel strength wise, which also ends up being, you know, I'm really not good at talking today. I'm <laughs> no, you're fine. It's it's a um tricky topic because I feel like well maybe you weren't brought up that way, but we were brought up with all these people, you know, shouting at us that like skinny was the only way to be, and then now we're going so far the other way mm. that I think that a lot of women don't know how to talk about it because we were still raised a certain way, and so sometimes you do look at yourself in the mirror and you think, "Oh, I'd like to change that" or this kind of thing. But then at the same time, we're kind of told, well, you can't say that. Mm. You're not allowed to think that. Mm. You're not allowed to say that. You have to love yourself. So I feel like sometimes because we're in the change, you do get stuck in the middle where you're like, oh crap, sometimes my mind defaults to that other way of thinking, but I'm not allowed to think like that. But it's like, it's totally natural that you think like that because that is what we've had yeah. said to us our entire lives. And now all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 must love yourself, must love all your imperfections you're ridiculous and vain if you want to change anything. That's a lot to think about in your head though, like especially for the people that have grown up feeling this way and then trying to undo what they've learned. That like the energy sitting in your head to try and rewire, that would be incredibly challenging and exhausting. It is. It is a constant headspace suck. Oh, I mean, it's just thinking about your weight. It's, um, I don't know if you've been following this TikTok trend of the Roman Empire. I was just about to say what the same it? thing. And I was like, oh, if you guys don't know what it is, then yes, you can explain it if you'd like. <laughs> She's excited. Because uh, I've us. been wanting to say this the whole time. Women's weight is our Roman Empire. Yeah. No, cool. it started from a, a girlfriend was looking at a boyfriend and he was, she's like, my boyfriend just talks about the Roman Empire. And she asked him like, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Which is like, you know, how often do you guys think about the Roman Empire? Not very often. Never, ever. And I don't like, even understand what it is. At least once a week, the Roman Empire. And she's like, my Roman Empire is weight loss. The thing that I think about all the time is not the Roman Empire, but it is weight loss. And I think for most women, as I said in the beginning of this, I think it's something that we think about all the time, daily for most people. It occupies a huge amount of headspace. I think about the languages and the uh, skills I could have adopted in all the time that I've, I meticulously remember yeah. the calories and the macros and the details of every single food, how much better that time would have been spent doing something else. But I digress. I come back to this point that I do think that we've kind of been shamed for going, oh, I wouldn't mind losing a bit of weight or, or feeling a bit better in my body. And I think it's incredibly normal to have shitty body image days in a world that tells you that the most impressive thing you could do as a woman is be thin. And I think that I have a few thoughts on this. One is that I don't think you're going to get better body image by losing weight. It is evidenced by the fact that I can look back at photos of myself when I was 20 and I was like, oh my goodness, she's hot. <laughs> she is such a babe. And I remember being her at the time going, God, I just wish I could lose more weight. And yeah. so I just want to stress this idea. I don't think we get better body image by losing weight. That's not the thing. 
But at the same time, I love this idea that you're saying to your kids like, oh, mommy's got a soft stomach and almost so soft and like nice to touch. And then you can also have the conversation of I want to feel stronger in my body. I want to yeah. feel fitter. I want to I, I be feel healthier. You're allowed to do that. What I think is what I, I try and avoid doing is going, I want to lose my stomach. I want to make sure my stomach's flat and that's why I'm doing it. Because, you know, I think whenever we're putting weight loss uh, behind our health ventures, that's when we end up failing and we're never consistent when we do that. Let's say I start running and the only reason I'm running is to lose weight. Now, after about six weeks, I hop on the scale and I'm like, oh, well, I haven't lost any weight or I haven't lost enough weight or I've gained weight. You know how those kinds of things can happen. Mm. And then do you think I'm going to keep running? No, I'm going to completely disregard that I'm sleeping better. I have more energy. I'm a happier person. I don't eat my husband, you know, for doing nothing what? anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't eat my husband's. Okay. I don't eat my husband. Anyway. <laughs> That's unrelated to running. Sorry. Though. He's very soft. I don't know. Whatever I was going with that. <laughs> um, you ignore all these brilliant factors because you haven't lost mm. weight. And so you ditch running, even though if you continued running for the next six months, do you think it's going to have an influence in your weight you know it is it's going to be a side effect of doing the healthy yeah but once when we use weight as a way to measure whether or not a healthy habit is working or not this is when we constantly fall off the bandwagon I talk about this in depth in my book your weight is not the problem it was a bestseller because for the fact that so many people were like yes I hard relate to this and um, if you have it you can go check it out and read it because we talk about how to actually be consistent and very key to that is going yes you can go I want to be healthier I want to feel stronger and fitter but let's stop associating that with trying to be thin because that yeah. is not shouldn't be the goal and when you notice your brain your brain is going to go yeah but I do want to be thinner I do <laughs> then you go you know what okay I, I hear that at the same time it's allowed to be a part of the thinking but it just can't be the sole thing you can't allow that diet voice which is really also an eating disorder voice to control the radio channel to determine the direction you go in do you know what I mean by that I do know yeah. what you mean. Do you know what I love about exercise is that what we were saying and you were saying before, you can do, like you can feel one way about your body and you can do a whole workout and feel completely different in 30 minutes. You can feel stronger. You can feel like you've, whatever, if it's weight loss, you've lost 10 kilos in that instant. And that is the reward in exercise. It's not like, I think that if you can change it mentally, then when you mentally feel so good, a lot of those pressures aren't as important when you've exercised and you do feel stronger in that moment. And then you wake up the next day and you're like sore and you're like, Ooh, I'm feeling stronger already. Exactly. I think we need to be taught what to do on bad body image days because they're going to come for you, especially mm. before your period. I swear oh. from like day 21 onward, I'm like the urge to diet is so strong. And I think what we need are the skills to kind of go, how do I not get sucked into yet another diet trap? And unless you know, right, well, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and exercise and move my body. And that's not because I feel fat. That's because I know I'm going to feel really good afterwards. We need to have the certain skills. I, talk, I do talk about this a lot. What do we do on bad body image days? And I give you a step-by-step -step approach about how we're going to get ourselves out of that so that in the next two hours, 
you'll be feeling completely different than how you felt before. And I think that is a skill I want our, us to teach our kids. Yeah, because mm. I feel like, it, as you say, it's so important to talk about bo- bad body image days because sometimes I just feel like we've flipped the switch too far, that we're just expected to love everything. And, you know, we've spoken about this before that it sh- our aim should be for acceptance rather than love because acceptance is, you know, much more tangible in the way that, yeah, we've just, we're just all of a sudden, I think, especially postpartum, like you're allowed to find the changes confronting, but we just shouldn't, you know, hate ourselves over them. Yeah. And you're allowed to make changes to your lifestyle to make yourself feel better without it being called disordered or wrong, bad. It does depend on what place it comes from. Ideally, it's not coming from a place of I loathe myself. You know what? A lot of like my weight loss pursuits when I was growing up came from self-loathing. I would like loathe myself so much. I'd lose the weight. Then I wouldn't loathe myself anymore. So I could never maintain the things that I was doing because they were only came from self-loathing. But once we kind of do things because we like ourselves, like I exercise every day now because it's my mental health walk. It's my mental, like I, I need it, not because I dislike myself, because I like how it makes me feel. So it is this huge mindset shift. We And this is the same when we're talking about exercise with our kids. We want them to see this kind of language. Oh, I don't feel that good. I feel like, oh, I need to feel a bit better. You know what? I'm actually going to go for a walk now. All right. See you guys later. Come back. And and mum's a better version of herself. Yeah. And this was the whole criticism of that Bluey episode is that they were like 90% of the way there. And then they showed the grabbing of, you know, bandits tummy rolls. And it's like, we can still tell our kids that exercise is a good thing. That, that is fact, but it, doesn't have to be tied to losing weight. Yeah. And I think what you pointed out is so rightly, we are this middle generation. When I say it ends with us, we carry the burden of having being trained one way and trying to train our kids to be another way. And we have to sit with the discomfort of having that diet voice inside of our brain, probably for a really long time and learning how to notice when it's talking. Okay. All right. And what I want you to try and imagine is let's say you have a thought that's like, oh, should I really be eating that? Or, oh my God, I can't believe I screwed up again. Or like I've eaten like a whole row of chocolate. May as well just keep going. I'll start again tomorrow. When you notice thoughts like that, I want you to go, oh, okay. Diet voice, whatever you want to call it, eating disorder voice, whatever helps you kind of recognize. Then I want you to imagine that your brain is like a radio channel. And I want you to go, right? No, we're not listening to that station anymore. And you distract yourself and you go, right, well, we're going to think about something else. That thought might pop up again. Oh no, but you really screwed up and you you notice it and you switch the channel again. Now, what this is doing is neuroplasticity plasticity plasticity oh my goodness I can't talk today <laughs> and we're rewiring your brain by every time we're kind of cutting short these thoughts we're meaning that they get less airtime. and so in the future you will find that these thoughts are less pervasive they le- have less control it's not a bad thing that you would have thoughts going I want to be healthier but when you're saying god I'm fat I screwed up I'm like I really need to like fix myself when you notice these thoughts these thoughts are not helpful they do not motivate us to be healthy they do not help us be consistent in fact, they lead to all or nothing thinking around food, which is incredibly problematic. And then not coming out of our mouth either. Indeed. <laughs> which I think is another big change. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for chatting with us today, Lindy. I've absolutely loved this chat. Yeah, you're just an absolute wealth of knowledge. And I love your framing because it's actually quite simple. I think we can sometimes think, oh, God, another thing that we have to change all our thinking over. But the changes are, are really quite 
quick and easy. And you're allowed to be a work in progress. My mum and I have had really big conversations since, you know, I was teen and she's apologized. I had no idea that what I was doing was having this impact on you. I I was trying to help you. And I think yeah. I can just finish with one idea. If you had a parent who you grew up going and they, they were commenting on your weight and making all these comments and something that really helps take the anger out of it and going, I can't believe they did that to me is to have empathy and go, they were just doing what they were taught. They were doing what they thought was best for me. And yes, they were wrong about it. But as my mom has done, she has apologized and said, I want to try to be better. I'm sorry. I didn't know better. No one was talking about how to love your body or not give your kids an eating disorder like they are doing right now. I wish this was around when you were young, but it wasn't. And I want to do better now. And that's music to my ears. That's what I want to hear. And I think that is another thing that we can kind of go. You are going to say things to your kids along this way, especially if you you've had a history of dieting where you're going to screw up, you're going to say the wrong thing and you're allowed to kind of go, hey, listen, I really didn't mean what I said and try reframe and you're allowed to try and get better and better and better so that, you know, when they're teenagers, they're kind of going, this is how my mom talks around food, that maybe what you said when they were three years old is probably not going to have as much influence as it does as when they get to those kind of teen years but you've practiced it all. I love that. Progress over perfection in all of parenting. All of life. Thank you so much, Lindy. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.